Welcome to Terragrams. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 8th delivery of Terragrams. Today we are joined by Neil Kirkwood. Mr. Kirkwood is presently the chair of the Department of Landscape Architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. He has taught at the GSC since 1992 and is now a professor of landscape architecture and technology and the director of the Master in Landscape Architecture degree programs. His teaching and research focuses on issues concerning landscape technology, durability, details, and perhaps most importantly, the reuse of industrial sites and disturbed landscapes. He is the founder and director, current director of the Center of Environment and Technology at the GSC and has lectured about his published and research widely. His published books include The Art of Landscape Detail, Manufactured Sites, Rethinking the Post-Industrial Landscape, and his most recent book, Weathering and Durability in Landscape Architecture. He's a registered landscape architect and architect, and before entering the academic realm in 1991, he spent 20 years in private practice working with offices such as Hannah Olin Landscape Architects in Philadelphia, as well as Trevor Dennett and Partners Architects in London, and Derek Lovejoy and Partners Landscape Architects in Scotland. We're pleased that you could take the time for us to join you here at the GSC. Welcome to Terragrams. Thank you. You began your studies at the University of Manchester, England, to become an architect. Practiced for more than a decade, and then at the age of 32, after reading the book Design with Nature, sold everything and left London to study underneath Ian McCarg, the author of the book. Was this a, really a crystallizing and pivotal moment for you? I would say actually reading Ian's book was, but there were other things that um, led up to that decision. Uh, first of all, uh, in my own background, growing up in Scotland, uh, a country where um, you're always aware of the durable landscape, the geology beneath your feet. It's actually a fairly hard and uh, unforgiving landscape. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is, in fact, the architecture in Scotland, as it were, particularly the traditional architecture, emerges from the land. In some cases, it's actually difficult to see where does the architecture uh, begin and where does the landscape end, particularly growing up in Edinburgh. So I think one of it was just simply one's kind of environment growing up. The second is that both of my grandparents, uh, grandfathers, I should say, were involved in shaping the land. They were actually both professional gardeners. Mm -hmm. uh, they were trained just before the First World War in the old-fashioned way in, in Britain where you would be apprenticed to a, an estate. Mm -hmm. And they both actually were trained in England as, as young men, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds at that time. So um, I grew up, in a sense, knowing um, that there was this tradition, as it were, in my family. My, one of my, grand, my paternal grandfather actually was the head gardener for an estate um, <clears throat> grounds in Scotland and Perthshire, which had formal gardens, cutting gardens uh, that land on to, to styles and fences with fields of, of highland cattle, uh, and then on to a kind of fairly rocky landscape. In other words, uh, 2,000, 3,000 acres. And I used to spend summers there, mm -hmm. uh, which was clearly not a natural landscape, but a landscape inhabited, worked, cultivated. Um, when, I was when I was practicing architecture, I became increasingly aware of the limitations of architecture. There's an old phrase that I used to use that it's actually quite easy to do a complex building, but it was actually very difficult to do even a simple landscape. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> secondly, I had actually begun to question, although I had been involved with uh, being a, a project architect on the British Embassy in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, had done social housing, senior housing in London, had worked on school buildings, a kind of range of what a, a young architect might do. I had actually begun to question the role of architecture and the role of an architect and had begun to find it severely wanting. Um, and this happened in London where, of course, there was a kind of architectural milieu you know, Foster, Rogers, Hopkins, James Sterling's offices around the corner. Clearly, they were um, practitioners of the highest level. 
But I'd actually begin to question my own position in that field. Um, secondly, I had um, been coming to the U.S. mainly on vacations from about 1970 onwards. I'd spent uh, most of my time in Manhattan. I'd spent a lot of my time going to Central Park, going to Prospect Park. I just basically spent... Um, spending time in, in both in the urban spaces of, of, of New York and uh, other cities, Washington, and, of course, traveling in other parts of the country. Um, and somehow, coming back and reading McHarg's book, which, by the way, was um, more accidental than you can imagine, um, was was really that kind of crystallizing moment. But there is actually one other thing that, that happened. Uh, when I had, after I graduated, um, I had spent um, two years working as an architect in a landscape practice. Now, this, of course, completely overturns the normal <laughs> paradigm of, of, of many landscape architects who spend time working in engineering offices or working in and, and architecture offices. Uh, and that also had an implication of being in a secondary position or a subservient position. Were you making architecture or landscape? I was making modest architecture in a landscape that was fairly severe. In most cases, they were post-industrial sites. Now, this is 1978, when words like post-industrial brownfields was, was not really in the, kind of, the canon. And they, correctly... Um, took me on board, realized I had certain skills in, in that, these cases in architecture, and had, as it were, very slowly kind of introduced me to the work that they did, which was, let's see, very honestly, um, clearly in topographical manipulation, in plants and vegetation, and in infrastructure, particularly drainage and also circulation. And I was doing modest build. When I say modest, I mean buildings, uh, 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 pavilion buildings, um, sports buildings of, of more modest quality. Um, one was a driving range, believe it or not, in Scotland. <laughs> um, a, a, a kind of small golf pavilion. Um, and I began to realize that there was a growing interest that I had in not the articulation, expression, and form of the, of the architecture, but actually the kind of form, expression, and materiality of the architecture within the landscape. So that was the kind of the first move. And of course, when you've completed seven years of architectural training, you've entered architecture firms, and you believe that after licensing that your career is laid out through architecture, that can be actually quite daunting because mm -hmm. it su starts to suggest a fragility in, in decisions that you made. Uh, I think I want to therefore express that the, the, the being a architect in a landscape practice was actually quite a, an interesting prospect, and, and that again was one of the uh, how to say it one of the the ideas uh, or one of the main facets that, that kind of led to that decision. And there was a final one, and this one is actually even more, as it were, esoteric. As an architect, you, you sometimes have, as particularly as a young architect, you have a, let's call it a vision, a, a desire, a, a, a need to think about what would be your ideal project. That something that you always aspire to. Some, and it may be seen in terms of, of a particular place or a particular type of project, but clearly something that you might dream about doing, getting uh, a commission. And particularly in Europe, particularly in Britain at that time, the, the kind of the private, let's say, the private home was not actually a very common commission. Um, you tended to think about buildings that were more civic or, or public, schools, hospitals, etc. And I had this idea that my project that I would love to do, um, a thesis project, as it were, would be a, a chapel. It, so therefore, it had a, it was resonant with, with issues of symbolism, of, of a certain uh, 
uh, uh, sort of grounding in some form of religious sort of experience. You would go there, there would be... And, and of course, the, this, this ties back to uh, Ronchamp, Le Corbusier, I mean, many people have tackled the idea, because we were always drawn at that time to Ando, to the Japanese, mm -hmm. who de developed beautiful pieces of architecture. But as I thought this through, I was, became less interested in what the architecture was and how actually you got there. Mm -hmm. And I realized, actually, I started to think about that the building wasn't just a building. It was a building on a hillside. Mm -hmm. And to get to it, you had to pass through a field. And you had to pass through a subsequent, a spatial sequence that was, uh, to my way of thinking, non-architectural. Although I, I can argue now that actually it was architectural. Mm -hmm. And I began to realize that I was more becoming more interested not so much in the specifics of the building, but the building or the form in relationship to the place it was built in. And when I read McHarg, I began to realize, uh, even though I had worked in a landscape office, uh, I had been had courses in landscape architecture at architecture school, I began to realize that this is where my design interest lay. Hmm. And that was actually quite a, an earth-shattering kind of realization. Um, at the same time, I had also been even flirting with um, fields, uh, creative activities outside of even design. I had actually been completing courses in film school mm -hmm. in London. This was not a formal course of study. This was uh, a private uh, film school, Crosswinds. And I, th I used to go weekends doing film production. Clearly, I was disturbed about my current position, and I was looking for something. And it fell into place very quickly. I literally picked up the phone, and I called McHarg. <laughs> and he said, oh, clearly, A, you're Scottish. B, you're an architect. And... I have a history at Penn of bringing over young architects. Mm -hmm. And and thirdly, um, you must come. And here's a scholarship. Apply and come to Penn, and I'll see you in September. That's great. So it's a somewhat long-winded answer, but it really was not just, just the reading of a book. Mm -hmm. It was the reading of a book that crystallized for me a number of things that were happening professionally, that were happening to me as my design work was evolving and it wasn't just the matter of going to Philadelphia to study at Penn it was actually changing careers mm -hmm. changing professions and changing countries and changing continents mm -hmm. so I literally did sell up everything and I got my life down to two suitcases wow when you got there and started studying this thing, landscape architecture, were you surprised by what were you what you were doing and what well, you were being exposed to? I guess the first couple of months were a shock. Um, the, the the one thing that one had to be very careful about was not to fall back on one's architectural training um, too much. Mm -hmm. I can't say you completely forget it. I would say that it it tapped into uh, another thing on my background, which was um, all school children in Scotland and actually in England are required to do to a fairly advanced level the study of geography, which isn't necessarily the case in the United States. <laughs> so the study of, of geology, hydrology, uh, basic vegetation patterns, ecology, uh, and how populations inhabit the landscape is actually part of pretty much basic uh, middle school and, and high school education. So I realized that particularly when Ian uh, took us through <coughs> in the first year, is what is called the 501 studio, the 501, the, the McHarg method, that there was a lot that I recognized from my kind of uh, training, my education in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Uh, there but, were, but not necessarily architectural training. But not necessarily architectural. This is high school. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, there were large areas, um, particularly to do with the specifics of the sciences, mm -hmm. 
that that were quite new and one had to kind of struggle with them. And then thirdly was the, at that time, Penn, at that time is 1983, had just gone between the ruby lists, the kind of overlay sheets done by hand, and computers, very, very early computing. And so that was a new world to me. And did you see it in the landscape architecture program then in 83, 84? Yeah, it was just happening. Wow. And so actually it wasn't just me. I think every student was having mm -hmm. trouble with that, where we were moving between a kind of hand-based mapping and a kind of digital mapping. And it wasn't quite resolved at that, that stage. It was quite a very, very early stage. 20 years, we're still moving yeah, through yeah, that. <laughs> we're yeah. still moving through yeah. that stage. After graduate school, you went on to work for Hannah Olin. Mm -hmm. um, did you see yourself following in McCarg's methods, or did you find yourself migrating from the methods you learned at UPenn? Um, well, it's very interesting that I was taught by Bob Hanna, not by Laurie Olin. And um, that I have a history... Um, in London, I worked for my architecture professor, Trevor Dana, mm -hmm. who is a very modest but very gifted architect, who um, uh, modernist architect, a member of the, the Mars Group, which is one of the kind of European kind of research groups, uh, who was very influenced less by the kind of French, German schools and more by the Scandinavian. So it had a very light touch. Alto, Jakobsen, Finn Yule. Um, and here I end up again working in landscape for my professor. And mm -hmm. I think that, that marks something that I'm interested in, the idea that uh, both offices, um, while being serious professional offices, doing work, doing projects, uh, building work, had a and sort of academic overlay, the fact that the principals and mm -hmm. both were also teachers. Do you think that's that's ne it's necessary for good practitioners to also be good academics? No, because in fact there are, there are cases where that is not true. But I think in the case of the the Danet office and the Olin the Hannah Olin office, that they brought to the practice of landscape architecture and or architecture a kind of academic perspective, a perspective that was able to step back to place their work in historical context to understand a kind of broader range of reference. Uh, there were libraries in both of those offices that were quite remarkable for a professional office. Mm -hmm. These were personal libraries that they brought in. And also that they were constantly in a public domain in universities lecturing about their work mm -hmm. uh, and, and offering studios. And so I think that they provided, I think, a, a rich, a richer environment mm -hmm. than, let's say, a uh, a professional office in which they're not engaged in mm -hmm. teaching or education in mm -hmm. some way. So you you probably always, although you didn't go into teaching until almost another decade after graduate mm -hmm. school, you probably always imagined yourself being there sometime, given your role models. Well, that that's not actually true. Mm -hmm. um, but but let's try to flesh it out a little bit. Um, when I worked for, for uh, Robert Hanna and Laurie Olin, um, a series of strange circumstances happened. The first one was that I had come to the United States. I had studied there. I was going to commit to work there for a period of time. And I was ostensibly hired to do a project back in Britain. <laughs> and maybe I was hired because the project was in Britain. And, of course, that was the, the London, London Docklands work, mm -hmm. Canary Wharf. And so I started to spend my time traveling for that project and then eventually for the Barcelona project, mm -hmm. um, as well as doing the work with Marin King on the Wexner Center, the Ohio State project. And so my first three or four years were really focused on, on what you could refer to as standard practice, which is traveling meeting clients, going on site, working in teams, working with consultants, SOM, Pay, Cobb, Freed, uh, uh, Peter Eisenman's office, uh, Foster's office. Um, straightforward practice, uh, and there wasn't a lot of time for anything else. 
I think at that time I taught a, a very small course that might, have, might not even be on the resume uh, at Temple University in their School of Architecture, mm -hmm. a site planning course. But uh, Laurie initiated every Friday afternoon in Philadelphia in the 2020 uh, at Chestnut Street office. Uh, almost what you refer to here as a seminar. He, he kind of had a, a, he presented a project or someone would present a piece of work and then we talk about it and discuss it. And this happens within a normal, you know, billing time on a Friday. And you, it, it's, I think it was a, was a luxury we had, or let's say a largesse from, from uh, Bob and Laurie, to be able to kind of look at a piece of work, to talk about it. Um, as part of your professional experience. How many were you in the office at the time? It was about 20 people. The second thing is that because of Laurie's position, who was then chairman at Harvard, and Bob, who was a professor at UPenn, um, a lot of people used to come through the office. Um, other professionals, but other academics would, would actually just arrive. And so I was able to see or meet um, a whole range of the kind of the academic world in landscape architecture who would come through the office and see what we were doing mm -hmm. and talk. So the, one started immediately to kind of recognize that um, uh, the people who were engaged in practice at that level and the people who were teaching at that level were all closely interconnected. Mm -hmm. And of course, Ian would come to the office sometime and, and uh, I worked on a team with Beth Meyer, who was in the office, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there was always, I think, a kind of flowing backwards and forwards. A very sur simple circumstance happened where uh, uh, Laurie uh, was teaching a studio at, at Penn and literally could not afford all the time to be a studio instructor and started to bring in people from the office. And I was one of those people who helped teach so it was almost by accident. Slightly by accident. And then, of course, how I came to the Har to Harvard was, again, even more complex because uh, he was to offer an option studio and at the last minute couldn't. And I now think about it, it actually sends shivers up my spine. It's in 1991. Where literally, I have this, he was going to do the Four, uh, four Point Channel, the Fan Pier project, which mm -hmm. was the, the courthouse project, which was actually a live project in the office. And then suddenly at the last minute, couldn't do it, and I stepped in and taught that studio at Harvard, uh, which was quite a uh, difficult experience of stepping right in. Again, uh, an inherited studio, but enabled me to kind of uh, visit Harvard and kind of understand the GSD. You haven't, you haven't left. I haven't left, <laughs> or I came, or at least I, I came. came back, um, but. There, I, I want to be very clear that there there has been no, it's not as though I came from a tradition of teachers, like Carl Steinitz, mm -hmm. uh, or, or um, in fact, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Mm -hmm. So I come from a family of, of people who worked with their hands or, or worked in, in sort of, uh, jobs that... that had little intellectual content, mm -hmm. more repetitive jobs. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I, the, the, it's not a genetic thing. However, it should be said that I, uh, Scotland has valued, as you can probably sense from McHarg, valued, has always valued education. Back in the 1700s, 70% of the population in Scotland could read and write. Mm -hmm. Basic, basic reading and writing. So there is a long tradition of kind of valuing education. Your book, Weathering and Durability in Landscape Architecture, presents a number of case studies on the subject. From these studies, and perhaps more importantly from <coughs> this time in the, in the world of private practice, um, what did you learn were the primary characteristics of a well-constructed public space? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a... Uh... A very very simple question, but it's actually a very deep and complex mm -hmm. question. It can be it can be actually answered on many many levels. First of all, uh, the issue of durability, particularly in in the design office, uh, has been little discussed. 
um, mainly because uh, the way a project has been structured, um, it is about the completion of a particular uh, of the 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 material evolution of, of a conceptual idea. Mm -hmm. And while while there may be some issues of time, which is usually used using the term phasing, there is usually an end point to the project, a completion, the completion of the project. Mm -hmm. uh, I, admittedly, obviously, people inhabit the space or place, and things change over time. But generally, the designer, up to a certain time, not too recent, has have have had some end point in mind. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's even the client yeah. that has yeah. that endpoint in end point mind. On. And there's also, and also, there's been the great kind of debate about how you even photograph your project. The project is photographed usually close to completion, or even a couple of years after, and somehow that image, that iconographic image, becomes kind of fixed as the project. But of course, as we all know, and particularly in reference to landscape architecture as opposed to architecture. That the kind of evolution, first of all, the idea of living material as a part of our material palette. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the idea of use and change, and the idea that the the the, the a project has um, essentially a, a a life of change, decay, uh, enrichment um, is is not a particularly new idea. However, within the professional structure, it was little recognized. And particularly if you look at the work in the 60s and the 70s, there was little, little kind of understanding or even discussion about the idea of kind of the evolution of the project. Do you think there's more now? I think there is more, um, mainly because for a number of reasons. First of all, one is to do with resources. Mm -hmm. uh, second is actually there is a growing understanding of the evolution of spaces. In the 60s and 70s, there were... There was little precedent, or i.e., models that one could look at for spaces, unless one started to go to Europe. In other words, there was a there was wasn't a kind of group or a canon of work. What we're doing able now is to, for example, look at work done in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s even, and kind of evaluate them, look at them. Uh, I won't use the word success or failure, but the idea of the consistency of a project, the durability of a project, the project in terms of the thing itself, and also the idea behind the project. There's also two parts to it. And, uh, and let me cite an, a, a, an example. If you look at the work of Dan Kiley, you'll realize that Dan's body of work is, is documented, um, in, in some cases, as, as a simple naming of a place, a project, the time it was done. Um, we know projects by Kiley have been um, destroyed, literally. Uh, broken up, um, projects have been uh, left, left to, as it were, decay. Mm -hmm. Some projects are so robust and strong that they've been continually managed and maintained and, and are as good as they were when they were first constructed. Um, and there is always the, the kind of outcry if a project of his, for example, the, the, the kind of plaza in Tampa is going to be you know, altered. Mm -hmm. Which gets us really to the kind of idea of durability. Is it the durability of the idea of the project, or is it the thing itself? Can the idea remain durable through change? Mm -hmm. And I would, I think, I think it's it's arguable that, that you actually can see the durability of an idea, even though it actually undergoes change. By change, literally reconstruction in places, addition, subtraction. Um, and there are cases where basically the idea is also obliterated. Mm -hmm. And I think what I was trying to do in the book was not to suggest there is, a, there is a single way of addressing the subject, but that each designer in their design process and the ones who are able to articulate clearly their, their specific design process, there is embedded in their thinking the concerns of durability of their project over time. So, for example, Mikyong Kim uh, argues in, in her through her work that uh, the durability of the project is dependent on kind of alteration of the project by the user. 
by, and, and she uses a quite a, a specific kind of um, approaches to do with how people touch materials, how they leave marks or traces. Graffiti, for example, she considers not as a problem, but as part of the kind of the evolution of her project, which are mostly public. Appropriation, appropriation which are public, playgrounds, small parks, <coughs> campus landscapes. And so she actually embeds within her design process the idea that that people will, will, will stain and mark and work her materials. Mm. And then in some cases that she designs very robustly, in some cases she designs knowing that things will alter. We had a very interesting kind of exchange about uh, a, a project that involved vertical glass, thick glass outside, and the fact that maybe the glass because of where it was, there may be bullets, you know, and would it shatter? Would it would it actually still hold? And so she already in her design process was thinking that way. Other people, for example, have a completely different, you know, take. For example, um, uh, Mario Shetnan sees durability through a kind of more organic change. Uh, so he uses very kind of humble, robust materials, of, of kind of a pumice, red pumice stone as a gravel. He uses a lot of the durable kind of hard stone and vegetation, which is, of course, ramp grows mm -hmm. lushly and richly in that environment. Um, he sets in an architectural structure very early on in his projects, and he knows over time that uh, a lot of the materials are going to break down uh, and to some people's mm -hmm. things fail. But as long as the structure is intact, that the idea will be durable. And so the intention was to try and kind of, not so much catalog, but to kind of get a sense from different designers, and they were chosen quite deliberately to be quite different, um, about how they integrated into their design process. Because the idea is for those to be models for, for particularly students, and the book is used in, in the core mm -hmm. technology classes, to start to think for themselves. It's not specifically about doing long investigations into the wearing patterns of brick, although that in itself is, in, is, is useful to a certain extent. But to get them to be more imbued, I see it as a design issue mm -hmm. rather than as a construction issue. You're listening to Terrograms, and our guest is Neil Kirkwood. He's the chair of the Department of Landscape Architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. He's also the author of Weathering and Durability in Landscape Architecture, Manufactured Sites, Rethinking the Post-Industrial Landscape, and The Art of Landscape Detail. You're now in the process of working on a book together with Robert France, who has written extensively about water management. Um, the book is entitled Reclaim, the Landscape <clears throat> Recovery Process and Design Practices. Is this a book about reverse weathering? It isn't actually. It's it's more about actually. It was that we we had a conference that we organized on, on the same title. It's really looking at a number of practices of, of both a restoring, recovering land, um, not so much returning it to a kind of point uh, in its previous occupation, but kind of as it were advancing it forward. As actually as George de Comte said, like the idea of shifting it, maybe to a point where it wasn't. Um, and it's actually one of a number of books that I'm, I'm kind of working on just now. One, uh, one is actually the the third book to carry on from where we're talking about weathering. The first book was, was the detail book. Mm -hmm. The second was the durability book. I I'm actually want to do the third, which will be the, the last of the kind of block of three on on making of landscapes. And what does that mean in design terms? And I, it's not. You a, mean the construction? See, that, that's actually a very interesting question, because immediately when you say making, people say, well, it, it's, a, it's about the construction. I'd like to kind of separate the word construction out, hmm. because it's so loaded. I'd like it to be a book about how designers think about making in relationship to their design practice. Because in most cases, the kind of conceptual idea is, is formulated and is then... Uh, evolves, there is inherent in it an idea about making, mm -hmm. about about 
tectonics, about uh, the techniques of making it, which some people call construction. Hmm. I don't want it to be reductive. And so I'm interested, for example, in um, a kind of parallel study that, say, Frampton did in architecture about the kind of approaches of making an architecture uh, to find parallels in landscape. And, of course, it gets us into very interesting areas to do with the border on you know, soft engineering in terms of material, material research. Um, and can we kind of pull out from that any sort of general principle? So that's the kind of that uh, book. And also some books on specifically on uh, remediation mm -hmm. techniques, particularly using plants. And a book that uh, is an outcome of, of eight years of, of teaching a Brownfield course I called uh, I'm gonna, The Brown Book. The Brown Book, that's good. Which is um, a book that really attempts in, in a sort of non-jargonistic way to kind of lay out Brownfield's Brownfield as, as design for both a general and a specific audience. I've noticed you're doing a lot of work <clears throat> Or and research about brownfields. How have you become impassioned with the with the subject? Nineteen ninety five, I had been working on the brown on the detailed book, working on technology, and as an academic, you're always interested to know where the work is going. In other words, what is the next piece of work? The the kind of evolution of your thinking. Uh, the beauty of uh, so an academic environment is that um, one is not so beholden on patronage or patronage or, or client to mm -hmm. uh, although you can of course speculate on your own work and, and, and develop projects but the idea of wh where does your research go and, and you're very much in the driver's seat and I had become very interested in the so looking at technology in a kind of broader kind of context. Mm -hmm. And I began to realize there was a, another field called environmental engineering, environmental technology, that was starting to do with very specific things to do with soils and water, particularly cleaning up. And, and uh, I had, had not really given it much interest before. And at the same time, there was a kind of a growing interest, particularly in uh, the kind of public sector in in the kind of cleaning up of sites. Uh, at that time, I didn't really know what kind of what that meant. Whether that simply was a piece of work that it was to do with environmental engineering, and it may have to some issues to do with environmental justice, public health. And then I I I I went to a conference in Seattle, and it was one of those things. It may be actually like the McHarg book. Which I remember, because I could, when I first read the McHarg book, I read it um, on a Saturday in Regent's Park, and I actually remember exactly where. And it was a kind of seminal moment. And I went to this conference, and sometimes you're going to wonder why did you go to that conference? And it was actually one of those things where I actually still to this day don't know why I went to that conference. It just it seemed interesting. And it was a group. It was a conference set up to deal with. Um, technologies to do with cleaning up sites and I thought I'd better go and find out. So I got got some money from grant money and I went there and there was 300 people there. There were people from Johnson & Johnson, DuPont, um, Chevron, Exxon, uh, Department Part of Defense. Participants? Or? Yep, both. Both mm -hmm. on both sides. EPA, a uh, number of states, um, the National Park Service was there. Um, Did you see many other landscape architects? Well, um, you're actually leading <laughs> into question. Not only was I the only landscape architect, but I was the only person from any planning and design field. It's incredible. So either you think I'm at the wrong conference, or right. and uh, so I sat through some, which were very technical sessions, I, I admit, by, by chemists and by soil scientists, and... I, I was at a, a, a session where someone was presenting a piece of work, and they were actually dealing with a 30-acre site, an urban site, which is a former oil transfer station, and they started talking about they were doing site remediation, and then they were kind of developing the site 
or working the site to a point where it could be changed into another use. And they were doing actually some vegetation planting and they were doing some other things. And I just put my hand up and I said, well, how did you make the decision to, you know, I actually asked something, how did you space the trees or something very innocent. And they looked at me and they said, well, we just, we just start here and we just laid them out. And, and, then, I, and then suddenly um, the penny dropped. It was one of those moments again where I said, this is landscape architecture. Where is landscape architecture in this? What is the role of planning and design in this? And clearly the answer was coming back. There was an incredible opportunity and no one was here. Why is it taking so long? At that time? Or, or you mean well, this right wasn't that long ago. That's true. Um, because and these issues have been <clears throat> on the table for quite some time. It's true. Well, it may be that there was prejudices or, or let's say, held opinions about what landscape architecture was, and particularly what landscape design was. There was, I think, one has to say honestly, a concern that uh, the kind of work done in the 60s and 70s under the broad environmental umbrella had led to planning of, of an interesting scale, but had not learned, had not gone to physical design. Mm -hmm. A criticism always leveled that design with nature, it's really planning with nature. Mm -hmm. In other words, the while well, Ian's work is seminal, that it was harder to find examples where principles could be taken down to project scale. And in fact, there were others who were arguing for um, uh, form-based approaches that came from land art, that came from the fine arts, and a whole series of things. And landscape architecture was very inward-looking at that time. There were individuals, you know, you could talk about Rich Haig in Gasworks Park. There was a series of you know, small projects here or there, but it didn't amount to anything. And so I just kind of, sort of said to myself, this seems a place where landscape architecture should be. Mm -hmm. And when I started to talk to some of the presenters, uh, Lucinda Jackson, Dr. Jackson, who is the top environmental scientist at Chevron, who is basically shaping the land through her work, and who is a very interesting person. She was actually a trained ecologist. Mm -hmm. And she asked a series of questions at her, her presentation. She put up a, uh, this was pre-PowerPoint, actually, almost. Mm -hmm. She put up a series of overheads and basically said, um, how do I turn a brownfield into a, a, a urban habitat? How do I encourage wildlife? How do I think of programmatic uses for people? Mm -hmm. These were all, to me, design questions. Right. And she was asking it to a bunch of scientists. Mm -hmm. And I said, and I went up to her and I said, this is very interesting. I think I can help you answer these questions. Mm -hmm. So that's why in 98, uh, as, a, as an academic technique, I held the Manufactured Sites Conference. Mm -hmm. And guess who, I, guess who I brought? I brought all the people I'd heard at that conference, Lucinda Jackson from Chevron, Steve Rock from the EPA, Eric Carmen from Arcadis, mm -hmm. and of course, for the very first time, to a, to at least to Harvard, if not, I think he had come to Penn earlier, Peter Lotz, mm -hmm. and you realize that there was this incredible field, this 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 body of work, in which landscape architecture could play a central role and was not. And from then on, I set up the conferences, I did the Manufactured Sites book, and I started to run the first um, course in, in Brownfield's reuse at Harvard. Do you think now the GST is helping to define the role that landscape architects take yeah. in remediation of Brownfield's? Uh, it isn't just the, it's just not just the remediation, it's also the reuse. Mm -hmm. I'd say I am we now in, in our core core courses, the, the fourth semester core studio project is a brownfield project. Mm -hmm. And oh, so right. therefore everyone, which is, you know, since your days, it, mm -hmm. it, it basically students cannot go through our program without actually doing 
a minimum of a semester's work on brownfields. So we're actually educating a kind of generations of students who now cannot believe there was a time when we didn't address brownfields. Right. And of course, you know, that's quite a bit of a short time. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact is that um, firms that I talked to um, around that time, 97, 98, 99, who looked at it and said, well, this is a very limited, you know, this is interesting, but it really has limitations. Basically, every project they're now dealing with is brownfield related. And so they're having to kind of gain some uh, some intelligence in this area. So in a sense, it it has happened, not because of me, but it has happened because it has happened. Mm As sites, particularly inner city sites, um, on, on Portlands, rails, industrial sites, most industrial sites, landfills, that's that becomes the subject matter of, of the field. Sponge City, a project of yours which was exhibited last year in the Rotterdam Architecture Biennale, curated by West Hayes, Adrian Goes. Isn't this project that you proposed constructed primarily from superabsorbent polymers, and aren't they what revolutionized the diaper industry? Industry. <laughs> the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> um, the project is about a lot more. And first of all, I have to recognize that the the project was a collaboration between um, fifteen graduate students from the GSD, from the landscape department. Uh, Myself and uh, a kind of a group from from the Netherlands, particularly from the Ministry of Water. Um, Adrian was the, the kind of curator of the entire sort of Biennale. Um, the history of it is quite simple: that um, he wanted to bring together a about forty-five or fifty groups, but both from private offices, individuals, and um, um, academic institutions to think around the whole subject of, of A, water, which is, of course, fairly natural when you think about the Netherlands, but more importantly, around a broad concept called the flood. Um, this is posited on the idea that if global warming continued, um, it is likely in a period of time that the North Sea would rise 10 and a half inches, which essentially puts the Netherlands underwater. And of course, they have over like more than it is yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, essentially, over 400 years, they are, of course, have developed a landscape, a psyche, a society that is based on defense from water. It's of dike systems, and uh, their entire kind of water management. And we were sort of therefore each given a kind of a task by Adrian, and we looked at actually a piece of the Wall River, which is of course the what become the Rhine turns into as it flows east to west and, and out into the sea. There had been serious flooding actually on the wall and that had taken out a number of communities uh, when the, the, the dikes were breached, I, I believe, 10 years before that. And of course, the answer was always to make better dikes, better uh, ways to defend against mm-hmm. the water. Adrian's idea, which was, I think, very interesting, was to challenge the notion of the continuing need for defense. You know, how many more inches do the dikes have to be raised? How much thicker do they have to be? And he used a number, which I I can't justify, I can't uh, verify, but it it might cost, uh, say, a billion U.S. dollars to raise the entire country's system one inch. Mm. And he wonders how how long can you keep Mm. on doing that? And so is there any other way of looking at the problem? Of course, you don't. it's not only just a technical problem, a planning and design problem, but it's actually a cultural problem because you're actually attacking 400 years of of a kind of mentality mm-hmm. of, of keeping out the sea um, or in uh, of the kind of river systems that feed the sea. And so the hypothesis is very simple. Could you make wetlands, flooded areas that, that, that could uh, accept water volumes for short periods of time and then release them, or at least hold them in some way. Um, that in itself is quite a radical idea mm-hmm. in the Netherlands. And also, what does it mean 
particularly as there is a need for continued urbanization uh, and growth in the population. So on the one hand, you need to give land away, but at the same time, you need land for development. Um, and so we worked on a project that uh, built 50,000 new housing units in a particular part of the wall, but also took down some of the dikes and created large wetlands, hmm. or floodplains, let's hmm. call it, with a super dike further back that, that would be the last kind of, so that m let's say 9 out of 10 or 20 out of 22 events could be held by the floodplain uh, and that the super dike would eventually keep back the, the, the thousand year mm. event which is happening now every five years <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it was speculative it was intended to provoke it was intended to develop other lines of thinking and so we tied in not only a kind of replanning effort of moving back the kind of front dikes but also of of looking at the kind of techniques and technologies of dike construction. And one parallel activity was the kind of growing interest in SAP, superabsorbent polymers, as a material. Again, this is untested, but it suggested that a form of the, in the planning could use a kind of a dike construction that actually, as the name suggests, sponge-like, would actually be able to kind of absorb water and hold it, and in doing so, um, kind of alter, but not catastrophically, the nature of the dike. And so if you think of it as just a large sponge that will be able to soak up and continue to take in a large volume of water, uh, and then slowly can release it as, as a sponge would in a bath, and I suppose as it's taking in water, it's also increasing its role as it's, a barrier. Yeah, as a barrier, as a volume. And we also worked out something called hard shells and soft shells, in which some places could actually be uh, built, buildable. In other words, one could build on, uh, top. on top. And some parts could be roadways, some parts could be more kind of fragile pedestrian paths. And so we developed uh, both a model, a, a physical model, which we built, uh, drawing sketches and narrative which was on display it generated an incredible amount of interest both of the media there uh, in terms of the the crown prince of Netherlands who's the one of the main sponsors commented on it uh, there were many other projects Michel Courjou did the project uh, uh, I think two other academic institutions both of Europe did pieces of work but something happened of course during or just after that time, which was, of course, Katrina. It was and after. After. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, um, in the soul-searching after kind of Katrina and New Orleans, um, there was, of course, attention drawn to the Netherlands, which has had a mentality of kind of defense and, and kind of how to deal with uh, issues of, of flooding and, and flood ingress. And so, right now... We are, there are two pieces of work that are going forward. One is uh, with Anne Raver, who's a journalist for the New York Times, is starting to look at the idea, can you apply these principles to New Orleans? Mm -hmm. Which again, is, is speculative, but then again, there are a hundred other speculative right. projects out in New Orleans, which to me still has not really been, they have not really addressed. And the second thing is that the, the Dutch have come back to us with, uh, they want to actually construct a, a piece mm -hmm. to see how it'll work. So that's a very kind of exciting that's venture. Great. So um, it, it suggests that once you go into an academic position, a kind of a teaching position, you, leave, you can leave practice behind. And I, I like to argue with my colleagues that by doing this type of work I'm able to continue to practice mm. but to practice from an academic position to to work with graduate students and my colleagues to to work on problems global problems to helpfully develop knowledge to be able to speculate and innovate in some cases without risk 
and also to kind of um, then assist the profession mm-hmm. in developing kind of a knowledge base. And I think, therefore, I'm quite happy in not having a formal office that does projects uh, in a more conventional or normative way. Another another model that is open to academics, of course, is competitions. I have no interest in competitions whatsoever, A, because chances are quite unrealistic. <laughs> They're based on juries. What I am interested in doing, what I did, for example, for the what is called the Great Park Orange County project, which was won by mm-hmm. Ken Smith, is I, if you look at their website, I came in before to help their committee work out how to do a competition. Mm-hmm. And so I, I gave him a, I, so I gave a lecture, which is on the website there, um, that gave examples from a, a project that I'm involved with in, in Tel Aviv, in Israel, which has similar scale and size. It is a project that will be a park. The site is quite difficult, partly contaminated, and it's involving multiple stakeholders. Mm. And so that's the kind of role that I like to play. And I don't feel a need to have to be an, an, an competitor in the competition. And do you miss the construction process? Well, I don't, I've never left it, actually, because um, construction is everywhere. You, you just walk outside the door and you can see it. The other thing which is quite nice is that uh, I have, through, through, luckily through contacts, um, my old contacts, uh, help out other offices now and again. I, I worked with Mario Shetman, for example, and just recently uh, Olin's office has asked me back, A, because they're working on a monograph to talk about durability and materials, but also the idea of working with them on a project about uh, post-occupancy evaluation. So you still have... So I still maintain... Still on the, both sides of the yeah, fence. Yeah. And I think, actually, that that enriches uh, a teaching experience for graduate students, mm-hmm. which is why so many of our faculty do, do both. Do both. In some way or another. Yeah. yeah. Neil, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I want to thank you for all your insight and time and um, wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much, Greg. Neil Kirkwood is Professor of Landscape Architecture and Technology, the Director of the Master in Landscape Architecture Degree Programs, and since 2003, the Chair of the Department of Landscape Architecture, all at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Thank you for joining us for the 8th Dispatch of Terrograms. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Terrograms is made possible with the help of the School of Architecture and Robertson Digital Media Lab at the University of Virginia. Find out more about their programs at www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the eighth delivery of Terrograms. Uh, Brownfields was not on any curriculum ten years ago. Mm-hmm. It's on almost everyone now. Um, and therefore, I think landscape architects have to be nimble, they have to be intellectually quick, and they have to be able to see kind of evolution of ideas and changes globally while still able to work on a very local level. I think the difference is maybe moving from top down to bottom up. Well, won't they become generalists? Um, risk, risk being able to play the game because they don't have the specific tools? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong in being a generalist. Uh, I actually think of myself as a kind of generalist who's also very uh, Specific. <laughs> uh, I, I think actually they'll just they'll still be generalists. They'll be fairly broad, but there will be in certain areas they will down in depth in terms of their knowledge base, um, which is like the medical, the, the doctor mm-hmm. analogy uh, of a broad generalist understanding with a specialization in a certain area. So GPLA. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you can only push that one analogy so far. But I think also there's, uh, again, a, a larger social agenda coming back, driven by the student body, which is a kind of welcome. Mm-hmm.
Um, in the end, it's about design, though. And I just argue that I, I look for a broader, a more Catholic you know, definition of design than maybe has been previously thought. And another area, of course, is is to divest the term technology uh, of kind of its previous meanings and to see it as an active agent rather than some um, reductive process. Mm -hmm. Hence, the, the sponge project, for mm -hmm. example, is, is where one is trying to push the technology and actually use the technology as one of the design drivers. Mm -hmm. You'll have to go back to school. <laughs> <laughs>